Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapter two of On Liberty, John Stuart Mill is making a set of arguments for the reasons why we should not engage in silencing or suppression of opinions, with a few exceptions being made in later chapters. And among the arguments that he makes is that it's actually bad for us to, if we think that we have the truth, to silence everything else because we're not going to hold the truth. We're not going to hold that opinion in the same way when there's no opposition or contrast to it. And this is a really an interesting argument that is very on point. A lot of people forget about this. They think when we're discussing matters of freedom of expression and marketplace of ideas and all these sorts of things, they forget that that human beings can hold truths or hold opinions that they believe to be true in a variety of ways. And one of the things that Mill is really concerned about is the danger of truth, if one has actually found it, being held not as a living truth, something that actually fits in with one's life and motivates oneself and can be a resource, but instead as being what he calls a dead dogma. Now, what is a dogma? That is worth dwelling on this a bit. We often use this term rather pejoratively, and by Mill's time, it had, it had actually come to be viewed in that way. A dogma originally means something that has to be believed. And it's not originally said in a religious context, although that's where it probably had the greatest extent within Western Christianity, talking about different dogmas of Christianity, right? It was used by philosophers as well. The Stoic school and the Epicurean school were dogmatic philosophies in the sense that they they said that dogmata, judgments or opinions, certain of them actually had to be held in order to, to fit into that philosophy. At that time, it wasn't, without that pejorative sense, it wasn't understood that a dogma would be something that, yeah, you just believe in it and don't think about it or anything like that. As a matter of fact, it had to be part of the living fabric of the philosophy or it wouldn't work. By the time that Mill is writing, a dogma is something that you, you just believe in and you don't question it and you don't accept other people trying to you know take it down or argue against it. You just say, shut up and let me think what I want to think. And so that's not a living truth. He says that there is a class of persons who think it enough of a person assents undoubtingly to what they think true, though he has no knowledge whatever of the grounds of the opinion and could not make a tenable defense of it against the most superficial objections. That's a good example of a dogma. Somebody who is dogmatic today is holding their belief essentially as a mere prejudice. They were taught that and that's what they're going to accept. He says, such persons, if they can once get their creed taught from authority, naturally think no good and some harm comes of it being allowed to be questioned. And I'll say that in our own time, more than 100 years after Mill is writing this, more than 150 actually, being anti-dogmatic or being a rationalist or a believer in logic or stuff like that, that can become 
just as much a dogmatically held viewpoint as anything else. As a matter of fact, many of the people that you engage with today who claim that they are scientific or logical or rational don't have a clue what those terms actually mean. They've just been taught something and they've been taught that other ways of thinking about things are non-logical, non-rational. If you question them on it, all they can do is parrot back something like a catechism that would put a religious person to shame. As a matter of fact, a lot of religious people can't even do their catechism for the religions that they buy into. So there's lots of people who do this. We can do this with political doctrines. There are people who are on the left and on the right and plenty of centrists who have essentially no idea what they're talking about. They just believe in something in the way of a mere prejudice. And what is a prejudice? It's deciding something ahead ahead of time and then not, you know, listening to anything else. So he says that where the influence of these people prevail and they make it nearly impossible for the received opinion to be rejected wisely and considerately, though it may be rejected rashly and ignorantly for it to shut out discussion entirely seldom possible. And then he says, waving this, assuming that the true opinion abides in the mind, but abides as a prejudice, a belief independent of and proof against argument. This is not the way in which truth ought to be held by a rational being. Why does he say that? Rational beings need to have some sort of basis, some sort of capacity to explain what it is they believe. Doesn't mean that they have to be able to satisfy everybody else's doubts or arguments. That's not really the criterion, but they, they sure have to be able to say something more than I just believe this, or that's just my feeling, or I was taught that way. They gotta be able to provide something that could potentially satisfy and enlighten another person. And so rational beings need to be able to understand their beliefs or opinions. They need to know the basis. And Mill goes on and he says that this is not knowing the truth. Truth thus held is but one superstition the more accidentally clinging to the words which enunciate a truth. It's not to be a rational being. And so he goes on and he says, what would a rational being have to do? Cultivate the intellect and judgment. And so they would have to see what other people have to say. And he brings up some interesting examples here. He talks about geometry and he says that, Persons who learn geometry do not simply commit the theorems to memory. They understand and learn likewise the demonstrations, and it would be absurd to say they remain ignorant of the grounds of geometric truths because they never heard anyone deny and attempted to prove them. And he says, the peculiarity of the evidence of mathematical truths is that all the argument is on one side. There are no objections. But on every subject on which difference of opinion is possible, the truth depends on a balance to be struck between two sets of conflicting opinion. And we might say there's more than, he says, even in natural philosophy, there's always some other explanation possible of the same fact, some geocentric theory instead of heliocentric. And he gives some other examples. And then he says, when we turn to subjects infinitely more complicated, to morals, religion, politics, social relations, the business of life, three quarters of the arguments for every disputed opinion consist in dispelling the appearances which favor some opinion different from it. And Mill does that in his own works. He's doing that in this very work. He's saying, well, you know, we need to think about the people who say that we shouldn't allow free expression of opinion. Let's see what their argument actually is. He does this in his work, Utilitarianism, where he begins by considering the criticisms made of utilitarianism. This is indeed how a rational person approaches the truths that they believe in. They don't say, well, I believe in them, so everyone shut up. 
I'm not going to listen to you. Nah, 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 right? That's an irrational way of behaving. You have to take in multiple points of view on complex subjects, which means this requires, as Mill says, encountering other opinions. What is it like to encounter other opinions? He goes on and he says, if we want to do justice to arguments or bring them into real contact with our own mind, he says, it's not enough that he should hear the arguments of adversaries from his own teachers presented as they state them and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. So you can't rely on sort of a textbook or a reconstruction by the others. This is actually a big problem. A little bit of an example here in the manual of philosophy and theology that were being relied upon largely in religious circles. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of this done in similar ways, just not called manuals in secular circles where they would say, well, this is what Kant says. And it would be some reconstruction of Kant with the best parts usually taken out and some summaries. And they say, well, this is why Kant is wrong. We don't need to talk about Kant anymore or Descartes or, you know, this person or that person in the manuals. If it was from a Thomistic perspective, it would conclude with, and this is why Thomas Aquinas solved this issue. If it's from a Cartesian perspective, this is why Descartes has done so. If it's from a you know modern secular perspective, it would be, this is why this person has shown that all of this is wrong. That manualist approach as opposed to a genuinely dialectical approach where you, you take on what your opponents have to say is going to produce dogmatic and therefore non-living approaches to truth. It's great for producing people who in artificial situations or in very restricted places can parrot back arguments, but it's not producing people who can think rationally and say, ah, you know, actually, maybe there's something good to this other argument over here. We better assimilate it. So he says that the rational position for a person would be to be in real contact with these things. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them. He must know them in the most plausible and persuasive form. He must feel the whole force of the difficulty, which the true view of the subject has to encounter and dispose of, else he will never really possess himself of the portion of truth, which meets and removes that difficulty. Then he says 99 and 100 of what are called educated people are in this condition, even those who can argue fluently for their opinions. Their conclusion may be true, but it might be false for anything they know. They've never thrown themselves into the mental position of those who think differently from them and considered what such persons may have to say. So they don't know the doctrine which they themselves profess. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. Does this mean that you have to listen endlessly to the positions of others? No, but there needs to be some contact with it. So we can't repress opinions, even if they're, we think that they're false, because we're depriving ourselves of the possibility of believing in the truths that we believe in as living truths and not mere dogmas, not mere prejudices, not things that we've assimilated and are sort of, you know, parroting back the way that a polemicist or a partisan would do. There's also a discussion here that's quite good about the restriction of discussion to an elite. He has in mind this view that would say, 
On these, he brings up theological and philosophical questions, but we could easily say this about economic questions or about uh, policy, you know, social and political questions, or even about aesthetics. We say, well, the ordinary person, belief is good enough for them. Tell them what they need to believe. Tell them to shut up if new doctrines come around. But we allow there to be an elite where there's, there's plenty of, of discussion. And Mill says, well, I mean, to begin with, that's kind of a problem because you're depriving all these other people of the opportunity to engage in it. But you're also not going to have a wide range of discussion, and that's not going to be good for anything. He says, if the mischievous operation of the absence of free discussion when the received opinions are true were confined to leaving men ignorant of the grounds of those opinions, it might be thought that this, if an intellectual is no moral evil and does not affect the worth of the opinions regarded in their influence on the character, the fact is how ever that not only the grounds of the opinion are forgotten in the absence of discussion, but often the meaning of the opinion itself. So we don't want to entrust this dialectical engagement of ideas merely to an elite. And now this leads into another key consideration. There's a lot of ways in which people believe some set of doctrines and dogmas, some truths, whether they were revealed from on high or came up from the masses originally or were in some best-selling book that now we all have to buy into. There's a lot of ways people believe that and turn those opinions that they hold to be truths into something that's dry, something that's dead, formulaic. So without some sort of opposition or contrast, what here uh, Mill is calling a creed becomes formulaic. And he says that the words which convey it cease to suggest ideas or suggest only a small portion of those they were originally employed to communicate. Instead of a vivid conception and living belief, there remain only a few phrases retained by rote, or if any part, the shell and husk only of the meaning is retained, the finer essence being lost. He says, this is illustrated in the experience of almost all ethical doctrines and religious creeds. They're full of meaning, vitality to those who originate them and to the direct disciples of their originators. Their meaning continues to be felt in undiminished strength and is perhaps brought out into even fuller consciousness so long as the struggle lasts to give the doctrine or creed an ascendancy over other creeds. At last, it either prevails and becomes the general opinion or its progress stops. When either of these results has become apparent, controversy on the subject flags and gradually dies away. Now, this sounds really great. Well, truth won. Without that contrast, the truth is not held in the same way. As Mill goes on, he says, those who hold this view have generally inherited, not adopted it. Conversion from one of these doctrines to another being an exceptional fact occupies little place in the thoughts of their professors. And eventually, he says, there's a decline in the living power of the doctrine. People believe things, but it doesn't matter because they don't actually put it into action. It's not, as, as he will go on and says a little bit later, it's not integrated with the rest of their nature. He says that what we see is the creed remains, as it were, outside the mind, encrusting and petrifying it against all other influences addressed to the higher parts of our nature, manifesting its power by not suffering any fresh and living conviction to get in, but doing nothing for the mind or heart except standing sentinel over them to keep them vacant. So 
an idea or set of ideas, a doctrine becomes something dead, something ossified, something indeed in, in the classic sense of the term, stultifying, rendering a person into a stultus, a fool, making them imprudent. And he, he has another great example here. He talks about, and this is quite interesting, we have these linguistic passages, right, that we call proverbs or adages. He calls them truisms. And he says that when we're thinking about prudence and knowledge of life, he says all languages and literatures are full of general observations on life, both as to what is and how to conduct oneself in it, observations which everyone knows, which everyone repeats or hears with acquiescence, which are received as truisms yet of which most people first truly learn the meaning when experience generally of a painful kind has made it a reality to them. So he says, how often when smarting under some unforeseen misfortune or disappointment, does a person call to mind some proverb or common saying, familiar to him all his life, the meaning of which if he'd ever before felt it as he does now, would have saved him from the calamity. And he says, it's only when we actually have this conflict, this generation of, uh, we might call it agonistic dialectic between thoughts and trying to apply them in real life, that we really know what it is that we believe. So it's very important if truths are going to be held in the way that a rational being holds truths that we're encountering other opinions that we think to be false. Otherwise, we risk degenerating into mere sets of prejudices. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.